In the blink of an eye, the holiday season is upon us once again. And for a lot of people, that will mean more time in the kitchen, cooking and baking for family and friends. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On this week's show, we're focusing our attention on food and, to some extent, the preparation of it. We begin at a museum in Brooklyn, where some of the exhibits are, in fact, edible. Cityscape producer Claire Drake talked with the executive director of the Museum of Food and Drink, Peter J. Kim. What is the Museum of Food and Drink? The Museum of Food and Drink is a nonprofit. We are New York's first food museum with exhibits you can eat. Uh, we're located out in the Williamsburg Greenpoint area of Brooklyn. Our goal is really to show people how exciting it is to, to learn about the culture, history, science, production, and commerce of food. And so basically we want to take people on learning adventures through the world of food and show them the history behind food, the science behind what we eat, uh, how it relates to our cultural identities, how food is made, where it comes from, and why it matters. So just tell me more about your background. I know that you have a law degree, so how did that start? I've been really uh, interested in food from a very young age. My parents were small business owners, and so I had to actually take care of my own uh, dinners from when I was 10 years old, so I was cooking from a young age. I started sort of geeking out on food history and science in college after I read Harold McGee's book on food and cooking. Incidentally, Harold is now one of our advisors and a good friend of mine, which is one of the more amazing aspects of working on this. I worked in hunger policy after that, and so uh, with the uh, Congressional Hunger Center, and so, you know, I saw another, I think, really important side to food that um, perhaps doesn't get as much attention as it should, but uh, the difficulties of not being able to have access to food um, is is a very big and a very important part. And then I lived abroad for quite a few years, and, uh, you know, in Central Africa, uh, where I started a small nonprofit and uh, traveling through Africa, the Middle East, and Europe, uh, and Latin America, um, you know, I, I started to see just the potential for food to serve as a sort of connector between people, um, even complete strangers. And so, uh, eventually, I worked in the law. And while I was working in the law firm, I went to culinary school on the weekends. And uh, you know, I think while it might not be an obvious connection for the outside observer, but in my head, when I met Dave and we started talking about the idea of making MoFat a reality, it really, in a very coherent way for me, brought together all these different strands into one beautiful, really exciting package. Well, listeners might not know who Dave is. Where does he fit in here? Uh, so Dave Arnold is my uh, partner on the project. He is the founder of MoFad. Um, he is, I guess... Best described, uh, some people know him as a mad scientist of food, but uh, really I would best describe him as a, uh, a writer, inventor, innovator. And, you know, he is a, a man of many um, talents. And, you know, he, he really had the vision for the museum. I mean, he's had it for quite a few years, but I think he just needed somebody to partner with to really um, start turning it into something uh, that was real. I know you traveled a lot and you lived in many places. So how does your diverse background influence museums, exhibition topics? We are hyper, hyper sensitive to being uh, culturally biased in any particular way. And I think that you'll see, like, there's a lot of interest in food right now, but I think um, there's a very uh, subtle, or in some cases not so subtle, uh, bias toward, toward Western food. I mean, when people talk about loving food, it's often the case that people think about Italian food or French food or Spanish tapas. Um, and you always think of like, you know, the fork and knife and plate as being these sort of 
uh, icons of, of dining, but uh, the truth is that for most of the world, that's not the case. And, um, you know, at MoFad, we're very aware of that. So, you know, just like in the, in the case of our branding, for example, you know, we made sure we make sure that we don't have any particular cultural references in things that are sort of baked into our branding. That's why the MoFad logo is just a circle uh, and nothing else, uh, because uh, the most universal symbol we could possibly think of for food was is a circle, because uh, wherever you are, people are eating off of circles, and they're also eating things that are shaped like circles. And so, you know, that's something that I, I definitely bring. I'm always very sensitive about that. And I think when we pick our exhibition topics, also, we want to make sure that we're picking things that are relevant and interesting to people of diverse backgrounds. So if we did, um, you know, if we went down the middle and had done like a wine and cheese exhibition, Mm -hmm. I think the problem is you're going to alienate a lot of people for whom wine and cheese is just not a part of their life. Now, what we did do is breakfast cereal and then now the flavor industry. And uh, we did those because breakfast cereal is one of these things that actually does cross cultural boundaries, Uh, immigrant families, People who have uh, generations-long families in the U.S. are all eating breakfast cereal. Um, And the flavor industry, you know, they affect pretty much everything you eat. Everything you buy from the supermarket has been adjusted by the flavor industry to some degree. So whether you are, you know, uh, a Dominican uh, immigrant family or you are, you know, like my family, a a Korean-American family or, you know... um, uh, whatever you know, like every, you're the story of the flavor industry is highly relevant to you, um, and we've tried. You know that that was an explicit decision on our part, and then we also tried to present the information in a way that, again, is like not taking a particular angle on it, but is is sort of. I mean, that's what we're all about. We're all about inclusiveness and making sure people feel that like MoFad is taking you is sort of like taking you by the hand and going side by side with you through this adventure, rather than like being like you know the museum that's like you know swirling wine and like you know telling you what the right what the good life is you know it's just really not our position to do that can you actually taste and smell the food here yeah i mean one of the things we've always talked about at mofed is that you will be tasting and smelling throughout the museum and so that was a major challenge for us with our this exhibition we wanted to do something where people could just dispense the tastings themselves um, and also just access smellings themselves uh, to sort of prove a point that like you can actually weave these sorts of things into an exhibition without there having to be somebody with like a ladle and like a bubbling pot like handing things and things splattering everywhere because you know that raises all sorts of operational challenges for a museum and so you know we invented these two new technologies for this exhibition uh, one of which are these uh, tasting tablets uh, that are essentially compressed uh, potato starch and chicory roots uh, with whatever flavor we want to deliver uh, compressed into the tablet with it. We also took gumball machines and reverse engineered them so they could uh, dispense one tablet at a time. And then uh, we have uh, these smell machines that we invented that allow you to smell different aromas at the press of a button and also to combine different aromas. And so uh, the sort of crown jewel of the exhibition is this smell synth, which has 19 different buttons, each of which releases a different aroma chemical. And then you can press them all together to create compound smells. And then you can press all 19 together or do whatever you want. But you can create over a half a million different flavors just by pressing the different buttons on this machine. So we've made it just sort of like, 
I think one thing that was key for us is like not having it be like, learn about food. Now over here, have a sandwich that's like sort of unrelated to it, or like let's celebrate food. Woohoo! You know that's not what we're about. You know you can go to food festivals, you can go to restaurants, you you know you can do it at home to celebrate food. What we're trying to do is we're 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 trying to make the tastings and smellings that you get at the museum directly relevant to what you're learning about in the exhibition. So it's not like a detour, but rather it's just part of it, like what you need to know. So as an example, in this exhibition, we talk about vanilla and then also vanillin, which is a chemical found in vanilla, but can, but that's a chemical that can also be found in pine trees and paper pulp and other sorts of things. And vanillin is the flavor that most people know. It's a sort of, let's say, lab-made version of vanilla. Um, and then there's vanilla. And so we talk about the story of those two things. And rather than being like, well, vanilla has a different flavor from vanillin, and vanillin kind of has this kind of, you know, taste profile to it, just take our word for it. It's much better to just say, here, that, like, try it. This is vanillin, and try this. This is vanilla. You know, it's just the point is immediately made. Um, and so to answer your question after a very long-winded answer, um, yes, there's tasting and smelling in the museum, um, and it is absolutely critical to uh, understanding the story of the exhibition. Thank you so much, Peter, for taking the time to talk with me. Of course, yeah. Thank you so much. Peter J. Kim is the executive director of the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn. He talked with Cityscape producer Claire Drake. Our next guest on this week's Cityscape photographs food for a living. Though his career taking pictures didn't start out that way. Alan Bat is better known in the culinary world as simply Batman. He's the brains behind a variety of projects, including the website The Chef's Connection. He joins me now in the studio. Batman. Hello. Hello. Uh, with two T's. With two T's, yes. How long have you had the nickname Batman? I'm going to say 64 years. Wow. Since I was a kid. Um, I'm older than 64, evidently. Um, But (laughs) I'm just, I don't know exactly. But when I was a kid, uh, you know, everybody called me Batman. And then I started to use it in business, I'm going to guess about 25 years ago. All right. Well, it works for you, right? It did, except I don't remember anybody else's name. It's easy for them to remember <laughs> mine. <laughs> well, your background is not in food, but these days it seems you are very, very much immersed in it. What's the story? The story is, first, I never wanted to, I'm a photographer. I never wanted to be a photographer, but I didn't know what to do. So I said, oh, I'll take some pictures in New York and put it on greeting cards. And that's what I did in 70, uh, 81. And for 25 years, that's all I did. I took pictures in New York and put it on cards. I had 100 customers, and it was fun. It was easy, no stress, which I don't remember what that was like. And then the Internet came along, 9-11, and uh, so I have one customer left that buys greeting cards from me. (laughs) So I had to find something else, so I decided I would do food. But Um, before that, you became a big deal, though. You actually were the lead photographer at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade for 10 years. Oh, yeah, uh, during the the greeting card thing. Yeah, I was the lead photographer for for Macy's, for the parade. I did their uh, fireworks. Uh, I've worked for a lot of, uh, you know, thinking back. At the time, it was just like, oh, it was just another day. Just a job. Yeah, and I said, oh, I used to do that. (laughs) It was really, uh, yeah, I did a lot of things. I've been around the block. And since 1995, you've been photographing and publishing the New York City Firefighters Calendar. Yes. I started in 95, yeah, it was 96 was the first one. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked with the fire department for 11 years, and then there was, uh, we split off, and uh, I do it on my own. It's a New York Firefighters Calendar, and we give uh, money to the Burn Center in Staten Island. Well, I wanted to talk about those two things because I think they're big deals. And now back to the food. When did you take that first food photograph? The first food photograph was at Tribeca Grill. 
I remember because it was kind of traumatic. I had all my my studio lights. I mean, this thing weighed a ton. And uh, and I decided I was going to do it on the bar, which was not very convenient. You had to kind of kind of lean over on the bar to take the picture. And I had, at the time, strobes, so you really don't know what you... I didn't do Polaroids. Um, the picture came out terrific. And that was it. But then I said, I can't carry this stuff. I'm getting too old, you know. So I uh, I went to uh, my local camera store, and I said, I need something light and small. And and uh, they gave me something light and small. So that was that was the first my first job at Tribeca. It wasn't a job. I did it for myself. And what was the food that you photographed? Oh, shoot. I know it. I didn't do my homework. I, I think it was chops. Yeah, lamb chops. Oh, I well, did my I, homework. Oh, good for you. <laughs> well, thanks. What did I do after that? <laughs> <laughs> that I was going to ask you. Where did you go next? <laughs> I remember. I started getting jobs. I worked uh, for Le Cirque. I did a big job for Le Cirque. I did uh, Bustello Coffee. In fact, their trucks uh, still have my picture on the back. I mean, this was a long time ago. I had to build a whole prop thing and stuff. Uh, the funny thing is, is I'm not a foodie. You're not a foodie? No, I never wanted to be a photographer. I'm not a foodie, and I shoot with all the best chefs, and it's really weird, you know. <laughs> what do you it's, like about photographing food? It doesn't talk back. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also, the chefs are kind of, they're artists, and they, it's not computer. They, it has to come from their head, you know, and their heart. And so it's really interesting. I enjoy it a lot. You know, I really don't know. I'm not that concerned with what's in it. You know, I don't know all the details. And a lot of times they'll mention an ingredient. I have no idea what it is. And then it takes about 30 seconds and that name is gone. So I can't even research it when I get home. (laughs) Um, But I I enjoy working with the chefs. They're really nice. They really appreciate, you know, when somebody takes an interest in their food or take pictures. and, And I've gotten pretty good. And they're happy with my stuff. I'm going to ask you to do some name dropping right now. So which chefs that we might know have you worked with? Well, first, if you go to my website, I won't mention the website yet because I don't know if I should. <laughs> Please, uh, no, I, do. Oh, it's The Chef's Connection. Yeah, because we're going to talk about this website. Oh. If you go to The Great Gathering of Chefs, which is a big event that I have, um, there's a list of about 600 chefs that I've worked with over wow. the last 10 years on my charity stuff. Uh, Jean George, Danielle uh, Boulud, Eric Repair, uh, Michael White, Wiley Dufresne, uh, who else? Uh, Seamus Mullen, Florian Bellinger, who's on the Cake Wars, I think is mm-hmm. he was he was a judge. Uh, I don't know. Pick a name. I, I probably were. Oh, uh, 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 Joel Robichon, Alan Ducasse. I took a, a picture of it. Actually, I took a picture of his food, but he didn't he didn't uh, plate it for me. Do you get to eat any of the food you photograph? Everything. Everything. Yes. Lucky you. You know, sometimes it's lucky, but sometimes if it's too many things. And, you know, it's a little bit of everything, and it's usually with desserts and everything. So I'll have a savory dish, and then I'll have a dessert, and then I'll have a savory dish, and then a dessert. And then after a while, I don't feel that good. <laughs> Speaking of savory and sweet, you've self-published a number of cookbooks, including Small Things Sweet and Small Things Savory. Right. Every year, actually, it's been three years since the last event. Uh, the restaurant business has changed quite a bit, so it's taken a while. Usually it takes me four months to shoot 200 chefs. I do two books, a sweet and a savory. And uh, then we have a big charity event called the Chefs, I'm sorry, the Great Gathering of Chefs. And we get an average of about 150 chefs coming. And it's pretty much a social event. We feed them pastrami and beer. <laughs> it used to be fancy hors d'oeuvres and champagne, but that, you know, they have that all the time. And now they really love Katz's pastrami, and, and we had Goose Island beer the last time. And then uh, they all come in their whites. I have a photo exhibition of all the work that's in the books because they don't get a chance to see anybody else's work. 
on you know anybody else's dish until then. So that's one of the attractions to show up and say, hey, what did this guy do? You know, and then they sit down and they sign a uh, hundred of each of the two books, and we give the money to charity. Uh, this year it's going to a public school in New York. That's great. That's great. So it's fun. It's really a wonderful event, and it's. It's one of the nicest. Oh, we also have a, a tasting after. We have it's two hours of the chefs schmoozing with each other because they don't get the chance to see anybody anymore. Uh, and then we change the room over and we have a tasting with uh, twenty restaurants. We sell tickets and the money goes to charity. Also, you published other books too, in addition to the sweet and savory uh, books, right? Uh, yeah, there's thirteen of them that 13. I published on my own. Uh, then I've done. I just finished a third book with a, a pastry chef in Miami, Antonio Bashur. He has really come up through the ranks. He's one of the top. 10 in the world right now. That'll be out in two weeks. And I've done uh, restaurants, Dos Caminos, um, Har- Harley, Har- Harley Tea, I think it's, I don't remember, in Soho. It's a big tea company. Uh, so I've done about 20 books altogether. Now, you said that the restaurant industry has changed quite a bit in New York City. How so? In the 90s, it was the dot-com business. You know, that's where everybody made their money. In the 2000s, it was uh, real estate. And now it feels like it's restaurants. There's big money going into restaurants. It's all big restaurants that are opening. Uh, it's the, a lot of the big guys that are around. They're, they're getting a tremendous amount of money, and they're opening restaurants like crazy. So it's become very corporate. It's not quite the artistry that it used to be. It's bottom line. It's it. Cut here, cut there, cut there. How fast can we get the customers out? That kind of thing. And there's a lot of money to be spent, especially in New York. I mean, everybody that has money is moving to New York. So it seems to be feeding it, and it's okay. Um, what has happened, though, is that there's so many restaurants opening. There's not, and there's an article every week in the in the papers about how there's not enough help in the restaurants. Uh, they can't get anybody, and also it's too expensive to live in the in in the city and be a line cook and get ten to twelve dollars an hour. Well, that's where you step in because not too long ago you launched a school that trains unemployed people and places them in restaurants. Right. I was sitting with Jean George. I'm going to name drop. <laughs> and we were talking, actually, we were talking about culinary students coming out of school who have learned all the fancy techniques. They're not really prepared to be line cooks, and they don't want to be line cooks for the most part, but they have to be. This is just the nature of the business. Now, for you someone start, not familiar with what a line cook, oh, line cook is, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a guy that stands in a line or a woman that stands in a line. Everybody's in a line. It was taken from the military. It's called a brigade system. And one person preps, the next one plates, and, and it goes on and on. Some people will cut you know, carrots. And line cooks are usually the guys that uh, they start off as prep cooks. And they'll cut up the carrots and cut up the potatoes and, and all the vegetables. It's hard to find. Getting rid of the illegal immigrants has hurt the business quite a bit. Because they came here to work, and that's all they do. They don't want to be chefs. They just want to work, and and send money home, and they, and they work like crazy. You know, there is you know, so it's really terrific. But there's not that many around anymore. Also, there's way too many restaurants. So I was going to back around to the culinary school students. I was going to give them the class to prep them to be in, in uh, you know the restaurants as a line cook. But I had some unemployed people in the in the classes and they were really appreciative just to get the chance to learn something and to do something and become somebody and that's all I do now is just the unemployed we don't charge them they they have to buy a knife and a hat and that's it how uh, do you fund a school that has no tuition well i asked my wife if it's okay if i take a couple of bucks out um i've been funding it um we started charging the restaurants $200 if the students will uh, stay for at least 2 months 
which is a bargain for the restaurants. It costs them more than that to find people. We've had pretty good success rate. It was 75%, but now that it's been five months and I can see who has left, who hasn't made it, because it's a, it's a grueling job. It's not hard, but it's, it's just a tough job. You know, it's, it's long hours, hot. So I would say we have a 50% rate right now. I think it could be better. Um, I'm learning a lot and how to pick the people, you know, because I'll get, I'll get 50 people in a room and I'll pick out the 16 that I think are the best. Where do you hold the classes? Food and Finance High School. It's on 50th between 10th and 11th. And, and it's, it's a really great school. It's a three-year public culinary course. The problem is, is though, because it's just a, a, it's a public school, and it's not a specialized public school, it's by lottery. And sometimes you get kids that don't want to be a chef. And uh, so they're trying to change it over because it would be better. But the next event that I have, which will be in March, my big, great gathering, um, the money is going to go to them because they could use it. It's all out of borough kids. It's really wonderful what they do. And they give me the, uh, the kitchens to use, which and just it works out great for everybody. So that's where we're at. Well, let's talk about your website, The Chef's Connection. You are connecting people to chefs and chefs to chefs, right? Right. right. How does it's, it work? There's three parts. Uh, originally, I was just going to do it as a Facebook for chefs. That was about three years ago. I decided, oh, I don't think the chefs are going to have enough time for this. You know, Instagram is a bit much for them to get involved in. So I just did the main part, which is the chef's connection. And it's uh, interviews and recipes. Uh, we got funny stories from the kitchen. They, it's one to three minutes of uh, some craziness that's happened in the kitchen. Those are videos. So um, that's that. We have, let's see, we have uh, job postings also. Batman, thank you so much for coming in. Well, thanks for having me. This is really nice. Alan Batman Bat is a food photographer based here in New York City. His website is thechefsconnection.com. Finally today, a classically trained chef helps to dispel the myths about the diabetic diet. Brooklyn resident Jackie Nugent is the author of the all-natural diabetes cookbook, The Whole Food Approach to Great Taste and Healthy Eating. Jackie, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks so much for having me, George. So what would you say are the biggest misconceptions about a so-called diabetes diet? Oh, there's quite a few of them. I think one is that you can't have sugar, period. Um, and that's probably the biggest, biggest myth of them all. But it's definitely something that you don't want to be eating regularly. You don't want cake every day, for instance. Um, but it's something that doesn't cause diabetes specifically, and it's something that you can incorporate within a diabetes diet. So I think that's, that's probably the biggest one of them all. What foods in this book do you think would surprise people most? I didn't know a diabetic could eat that. <laughs> probably... The healthy fats, maybe, like I, I'd go heavy, a little heavier than some people do on things like olive oil and avocado. So I think for some people with diabetes, and actually most people with the, the most common form of diabetes is called type 2, a lot of people with type 2 diabetes are also overweight. Not everyone, but it does kind of correlate um, in general with, with diabetes. So, and I think a lot of times people with diabetes or people who are overweight think, oh, I can't have a lot of that fat. But there is definite research behind a Mediterranean-style diet. So incorporating healthful fats like extra virgin olive oil and avocado and nuts and seeds, incorporating those into a healthful diet. And not necessarily a very low-fat or a fat-free diet, but actually a moderate amount of fat, which actually helps in regulating blood sugar because you don't have those big spikes of blood sugar after a meal when you incorporate those healthful fats. 
So if you're headed to the grocery store with your book in hand, what are among the items you should make sure you stock up on? Go to the produce aisle. You're going to need lots of vegetables. So that's definitely something I incorporate throughout the entire book. And it's, it's basically the way to keep your meals uh, large portioned. There's no need to have small portions. I think that's also another misconception that you have to eat less but you actually want more vegetables. Basically, you want to fill half of your plate with non-starchy vegetables. So, and it doesn't have to necessarily be the plate itself, but it can be vegetables incorporated into those meals. So that's what I've tried to do with a lot of the recipes is uh, incorporating a lot of those non-starchy vegetables like asparagus and mushrooms and leafy greens like spinach and, and salads. And it doesn't have to be that you spend more time. You can actually go for some of those packaged varieties like those packaged salads which is going to save a lot of time. So definitely the produce aisle for all those vegetables. You definitely still want a little bit of fruit. Some people, that's one of those other misconceptions that you can't have fruit, but I do recommend the whole fruit and not going for fruit juices that are just going to to get into your blood sugar too quickly. And then there's going to be some convenience foods. I'm all about natural, so I don't want anything in, in the diet that. Uh, that your body doesn't need. So, but for instance, there are things like canned beans. I love canned beans. They are full of fiber and full of protein, and they're going to help to create satiety, that feeling of fullness. So it's really one of those great foods for people with diabetes, especially because of that fiber that's going to help to regulate the blood sugar, but also to help fill you up so you don't eat too much. So you don't need to to, uh, cook those beans overnight. So go for a canned bean. And if you need to keep the sodium down, which a lot of people do with diabetes, then just go for the no salt added or at least rinse the beans if they do have salt. What are among your favorite recipes in this book? There are a lot of recipes in this book. (laughs) That's always the most impossible question. (laughs) Uh, I would say... any, well, basically, this book, it's the All Natural Diabetes Cookbook, is this is the second edition. So I came up with the first edition. Uh, I basically wrote it about 10 years ago. I think it got on the shelves about seven or eight years ago. So I think probably of the second edition, I like the things that are newest. And out of those, there, I, I'd probably say the things that have more whole grain. So there's one recipe in there that uh, is using a grain that maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with. It's it's frica. Have you heard of frica? I've never heard of frica. Oh, good. So so I like some, to kind of throw some interesting things in there so it's not uh, it, it's not the same old, same old for everyone. So frica is basically just a, a roasted young green wheat. So it's something you can use in place of like rice or uh, or bulgur or farro or some other grain that you might like, like quinoa. Like when I f- first wrote this book, the first edition, quinoa was extraordinarily exotic. But mm-hmm. now just about everyone knows what quinoa is. So I had to like, okay, what's a little bit more exotic these mm-hmm. days? So so frica would be one. So one of one of my favorite recipes there is um, dill frica and roasted carrot salad. So that would probably be at the top of the list. And I, I throw in some easier things, too, that might surprise you. Like for the holidays, I think one that might be really good is uh, I have a roasted Greek eggplant with feta. So it's just basically taking the eggplant, but you kind of use a little bit of a cheater method. You slice those eggplants, and then you, you brush it with a mixture of any store-bought marinara sauce that you like, but you kind of upgrade that marinara sauce. You put a little bit of lemon and lemon zest, a little olive oil, garlic, salt, and cinnamon, giving this kind of a little Middle Eastern slant, and just brush it on the eggplants and roast them. And then all you do to serve them is just sprinkle them with some fresh parsley and mint and a tiny bit of feta. 
So and that's something that I, uh, I think is probably a little different, too, in this book than some other books that might be uh, for diabetes, and that is I use real ingredients, like real cheese. I'm mm-hmm. not going to tell anyone to put fat-free cheese on anything. So I think if you use real ingredients, like something like a real feta, it's so delicious, you just don't need that much of it. So what inspired you to put this book together in the first place? My dad, he, my dad developed diabetes probably about, about 15 years ago now. And at the time, I, I forget what the date is. I can't subtract. I guess that's uh, 2000. Is that where we are? Probably the year 2000. Uh, I was looking on the bookshelves for something for my dad. I'm like, okay, dad, you need to start eating better. So let me get a book for you. And at the time, I found absolutely nothing that was natural. So it was basically everything was like the fat-free and then using artificial sweeteners and using a lot of processed foods. And I'm like, this seems silly. This is like my dad is, uh, has this medical condition, and I want him to eat better. And I felt like I was telling him to eat less healthfully by having him eat all of this processed food. So I'm like, I started to write some recipes down, and I'm like, maybe I'll just have the American Diabetes Association take a look at this and see what they think. And at the time, they didn't have... They didn't have anything natural, and they, they weren't, weren't even sure that a lot of people wanted all of that natural food. They're like, I think people really like that, uh, using the equal and the sweet and low and, and going for ingredients like that. So and they're still, they still exist, and, and people can use those ingredients. But I wanted to have another option, especially because my philosophy is all about not putting in your body anything that you don't need. Jackie, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, George. Brooklyn resident Jackie Nugent is a classically trained chef and a registered dietitian nutritionist. Her book is the all-natural diabetes cookbook, the whole food approach to great taste and healthy eating. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producers Claire Drake and Taylor Nolk. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.